Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, Joshua 8 is where we're picking up. Um, for, because it's been two weeks, context on this. Chapter 7, the walls of Jericho come down and they have a mighty victory. Chapter 8, they have a mighty failure. And that is the spiritual walk. That's how that goes. Generally, big victories come hand in hand with big failures. So chapter 8 then is pretty interesting because this is what do you do when you're backslidden? So the whole nation just had this huge step backwards. How do you get back on your game spiritually? And how do you get back in it? And we get to see a model of that. And I always, like Romans 15.4, just kind of sticks out for me when I get into the histories, which is whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. When we see giant defeats in the Old Testament, there's usually something in the next chapter that should give us some hope that God acts and has grace in those situations because he wants to work with us. He doesn't need to, but he gets to. So God's people don't move without uh, without consulting God back in chapter 7, and they have to deal with that fact. They moved with presumption. They did something as a group that they shouldn't have done because they should have waited on God's word to do anything. And they got one guy, Achan, trouble, messing it all up. So one guy's sin just kind of backs up the whole program. Uh, but they got to retake some lost ground. They have to uh, go up and take AI, and they need to recharge and renew their spirit. So we'll start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up into AI. See, I've given it into your hand, the king of AI, his people, his city, and his land. Um I'm going to break this down because this is an important verse. This is the verse after all that failure, right? And notice all the prepositions in the verse. Like there's things here to do. The first is don't be afraid. That implies that they are afraid. They just got their butts kicked by AI, which we're going to find out later is about 12,000 people. So they got about 2 million people. They just got beat up by a very small group of people that they thought that they could overwhelm easily. Um, so number one, God says, don't be afraid. You have to kind of accept that. I think that's tough when you backslide, is that when you have been dealing with sin your whole life and you have something where you go right back into that sin after you've been coasting with the Lord and having that purity in your life, and then you go back into sin after you've had that, it's heartbreaking because you thought you were doing so good and then you realize you're still human and you have to deal with it. But don't be afraid. Uh, God's not your enemy in that situation. You should accept his forgiveness. And back in chapter 7, they did all that stuff to repent. And God's saying, now that you've repented, you have no need to fear. And we have the same situation. It says, don't be dismayed. That's not the same as fear. Uh, dismayed in the Hebrew is to be shattered or broken. Don't be divided. Don't be broken up over this. Um, one sick Israelite is more dangerous to Israel than everything else. 
And I was praying about that because we're a small little body that studies the word on Sunday nights. If one of us is living in sin, that hurts all of our ability to move forward as a people of God. And Achan, it was one person living in sin that affected the whole nation. So if we're not pursuing holiness in our life, we're not perfect, but if we're not driving in that direction and God knows your heart, if you're not trying to kill that sin in your life, that can be something that doesn't just hurt you. It's not private. It hurts the body that you're assembling with too. And I, that kind of struck me this week as like, wow. Um, so behold, don't be shattered. Behold, don't be fearful. Be courageous. Know that God's not going to come after you for backsliding. He wants to heal you. And this is part of the journey for Israel. Then it says, take all the people. God points out, I think, the failing of chapter 7. They went up with a small group of elites because they didn't need everybody else. So when God says take all the people, he's correcting what they did wrong last time, which was to split up, right? We get this all the time. We'll go to the grocery store or something and stuff will say, well, why don't we split up and you go get these things and I'll get these things. And I'm like, I got all afternoon, honey. We don't need to split up. Let's just do the grocery store together. And the Israelites are the same way. One of the things apparently that they didn't do right last chapter, this chapter, they should stick together. Right, honey? <laughs> so accept God's word, number one. Um, don't be dismayed, be whole, number two. And then number three, be together. Like do things as a group. This is really tough to do. And when you have backsliding Christians, oftentimes you've got people in the church going 29 different directions. And pa every pastor I know has to talk to people and say, why don't we just do this together? Instead of bringing all your agendas in here, why don't you find out what we're doing as a group and join us? and be part of what we're doing together. So get rid of the fear, get rid of the, the brokenness, be together, and then it says, and arise. He wouldn't say arise if Joshua, remember, was on the ground with dust on his head. Remember that from last chapter? He had humbled himself and put him, himself in a position of repentance, and God's then waiting to elevate him out of that position. If we never humble ourselves, we never get God saying arise because we're so proud of who we are, God never has the ability to lift us up because we're lifting ourselves up. So because Joshua humbled himself in chapter seven, in chapter eight, God says, arise. God's going to put you where he wants to put you. I just, the opposites of all these are kind of neat. Um, the truth of our position is really important. When you're backsliding in Christ, one of the things we learn is humility in that situation. We learn that we're not perfect. We don't know how to do this well. We actually need each other's help and we actually need God to intervene to help change who we are from the inside out. That's a tough thing for almost every human to get a hold of is that we're not that great at doing this. So when God says arise, it's because we have put ourselves in the correct and truthful position underneath God's authority like Joshua did. Um, Daniel chapter 2 verse 12 if you want to put a thing, it's a great summary of how this works. Like this is how God's power works. And it's not just Joshua. It's a really consistent biblical theme. Humility comes to the position where God can then elevate. Uh, Daniel chapter, what did I say? What was? Chapter 10, verse 12. Then he said to me, don't fear, Daniel. See, we get the same thing. Don't fear. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and be humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. The power of humility is huge in the Christian life. It is the thing that God uses to take you and move you forward. 
If a Christian is too prideful, I would argue God often gives you trials in order to get rid of that pride because you can't humble yourself to God if you think you know how to do it because then you get all the credit when you do it. But if you've humbled yourself, you've literally lain on the ground, put dirt on your head like Joshua, you're in that position of like, before you, God, I'm nothing, then God can start to use you from there. And if you haven't been broken like that at some point in your life, pray for it. Invite it, because then maybe it'll be a, a less of a hard experience, right? Humble yourself, and God doesn't have to humble you. So as soon as both David and Jan, Joshua humble themselves, God starts to work with them in really amazing ways. And that's what I would hope for all of us, and I think that's what we all want. We want to be used by God. So God moves. They're ready to move. The next part of that sentence is go up to AI. So they start to move. They've humbled themselves. God says, don't fear. Don't be broken and set apart. Go up together and do this. Arise and then move. We move when God says to move. If there's an opportunity, there's a spirit for it. There's a heart for it amongst the body. You don't hesitate on those things. In faith, you move forward, even if things look daunting. So I know I'm taking a lot of time with verse one, but we got all night, right? Jesus didn't kind of speak to Paul. I think this is the tough part. How do you know when to move and when to stay? And I think it's unmistakable for the people of God. If you've humbled yourself, he didn't, Paul didn't have a feeling that God talked to him. He knew that God talked to him. It was an interruption of his life. Peter, when he got up, felt the spirit speak through him. It wasn't like a, I have this kind of thing I want to talk about with people. It wasn't a kind of. Moses didn't quibble about what to do. He resisted it but he knew what God had said. Jonah, because we're studying that in a couple weeks here, Jonah had no doubt about what God had told him to do. When God commands people to move, which is very rare in our lives, but when it happens, there isn't a lot of doubt that goes with that. We know God is talking to us. And if you don't know if God's talking to you, humble yourself. Wait for God to lift you up and tell you when to move. So that, that comes in, a, in kind of a, a process. So a lot of times when we think it was the Spirit, and this is just one of my things, I think we're sloppy with that in the church today. Oh, the Spirit spoke to me. I got this from God. When most of the time it's just you wanting something so bad, you're hearing that happen. But that is not biblical. Biblical, when God speaks to people, people are not in doubt about him speaking to them. It is very clear. And it's read through the book of Acts. I know some of you are doing that right now. There's about five different ways that God talks to the believers in the book of Acts. So there's a, you got to be listening in all five directions because God will speak through different channels, but there's not a lot of doubt when it happens, right? So God then isn't a confusing God. He's not the God of chaos. And when we think we're going somewhere in the spirit, but it's really us doing it, that usually ends up in chaos or division or contention. But when we move together as a body because we're of one mind and one spirit on it, that's not confusing. It's united and it feels awesome. And it's what believers thirst for in the church today. Um, so, oh, and then the last piece here. Uh, it says, I have given. Again, I love the past tense that God's using there. It's already done. This is like when Gandalf's looking at Saruman and he says, your staff is broken in the present tense. And it wasn't broken. But then he spoke it and it happened. God works like that. He speaks, it is, and it's already happened. It's already in the past tense when God says it's going to happen. So we have, when we look at our world today and the worldviews that are out there today and the chaos that's out there today, all of that 
it's already broken. And that worldview, that lifestyle seems so intimidating and powerful to us, but it's already been beaten by God. And we need to understand and embrace that. It's what God's trying to tell Joshua in the first verse of this chapter. I have given you the land. It's already a done deal. So stop trying to take it on your own. Do what I've commanded you to do. Humble yourself. Don't be afraid. Be strong and of good courage. Don't be dismayed, all broken apart. Don't split up the team. Stay together and shop together in the grocery store. You don't need to break up into parts. I have given. God's word is instant reality. And that's something I think we really need to like understand that. God's going to do everything. This is what he said back in Deuteronomy 9 before they ever got into the promised land. He told them the game plan. And this is tough because we as humans just forget the game plan because we like our game plan. But he told them how this was supposed to work. Deuteronomy 9 verse 4, don't think in your heart after the Lord God has cast them out before you saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. God's doing all the work. And then get this. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go into the promised land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, because you are a stiff-necked people. There's nothing that they're doing that earns this promised land. It's not their holiness that gets them there. It's God's grace that gets them there. That's a huge concept. And it's really important in the New Testament because we all base our salvation on that idea. We don't earn it. There's nothing about us that's worthy of our salvation or the promised land or that life in Christ or that spiritually driven life that has the abundant joy of Christ. So we thank God the work isn't reliant on our righteousness. We thank him that it's reliant on his word and his promise, which is already done. Uh, we'll get to verse two. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. If only Achan had waited like a week, he could have taken all the booty he wanted to. God was asking for something to be set aside for him, and then the blessings start coming after that. And God just works that way. If you don't make the things sacred in your life that God's asked you to make sacred, don't expect the booty to come into your life. And I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm just talking about the spiritual blessings that we get in the kingdom. So what a fool Achan was. If God withholds something good, it's either because he wants something made sacred or consecrated, or because it's corrupt and vile and he wants it out of your life, or he wants you to wait and learn how to wait. And waiting for God's will to happen in your life is a form of humility. To just be patient and say, we'll do it as we do it. We'll do it at the pace we do it at. So when Achan took his stuff, he had to hide it in his tent, which means he was shameful and he was hiding it. And it was something that was disgraceful to him. He knew it was. When they go into AI and take all the stuff, they don't have to hide it. They can wear their little Babylonian robes around if they want to. They can put it out on their tent. They can take the stuff they take and they can decorate with it. And they can actually have joy with it. Because when God gives it, there's a blessing in it. So, and then last but not least, it says lay an ambush 
for the city behind it. God's going to take their failure and he's going to use that and he's going to redeem it for brilliant military strategy in this chapter. So if you like good military stories, this is a great one. Uh, they put him in a pincher move, but it's the first recorded pincher move in history. So for people that like battle strategy, this will be a good chapter. God's command, even in apparently easy fights in our life, is far superior than, than the humans. The humans were just like charged the city and they got their butts kicked. Um, but they repent. They become of one mind. They keep the team together. They move together and they follow God's plan and they're going to have a mighty victory with no recorded deaths on their side, just like with Jericho. So verse three, Joshua arose and all the people of war go up against Ai and Joshua chose 30,000 men of valor and sent them away by night. So he commanded them saying, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind the city. Don't go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. So the nation's going to move together as a team, but there's different parts of what's going to happen. These 30,000 are going to the north of the city, and from that 30,000 will be 5,000 that go to the west of the city. Geographically, to the west of Ai is a deep trench valley that if it, it wouldn't be hard to look down in the valley and see that there are people hiding there, but if you, you have to look that direction. So AI not seeing these people waiting in ambush is because their attention is fixated on the main group up in front of them, right? This is like at Helm's Deep. All the orcs were facing the wall. None of them saw Gandalf coming from behind because this is kind of how evil works. Evil, when it sees blood in the water, goes at it like a shark and they don't think about what's behind them or beside them. They don't see the big picture. So when they're going at it, they, they're going to be kind of narrow-minded and narrow-focused. And in this case, we're going to see the same thing. So all the people of war, there's different people in the nation of Israel, but they're all going to be part of it. And I'm going to come back to that idea because I think it's a beautiful idea. Last time they had 3,000, now they have 30,000. That's 27,000 people that get to participate this time that weren't able to participate last time. And so being a former teacher, you ever have sports teams get picked? And you remember this? And you get the, you pick based on who the best athlete is. And you get down to the non-athletes, and they know they're not athletes. I mean, they get it because they've been doing this since kindergarten, and it's miserable. But what if they just capped the teams when that happened in, in Fayette or, or, or recess? And they said, we're only going to have five people per team. The rest of you can just watch. How heartbreaking. And what a devastating thing for these people that, you know, they're not great warriors, but they can hold a sword. But they're getting cut off the team back in the last chapter. That's just kind of sad. But this time they get to come with. Maybe they're not the crack troops or the best people, but they get to play. Uh, so they don't figure out the differences. They get to go forward. A lot of this, I think, is this idea that in the New Testament or in today's life where this gets applied is, have you ever been to a church where about five people do all the work and there's like 300 people that go to church there? Right? It shouldn't work that way. Right, but it does. Like a thousand people in the church and a hundred people do everything for the church. Everybody else is just bystanders. But that's not God's plan in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And, it, and, and it's something that we see here that, like, it, one, when you have that situation, it's an excuse to be passive for 90% of the people. I don't have to actually do anything, I can just come and sit. And it's also an excuse for the people that are doing it to be accepting worship and praise and thanksgiving from all the people around them. Pride. So when you only have five people doing all the work, those five people sure get a lot of credit from everybody else. 
And they can go, yeah, I know, I'm pretty awesome. And they can actually get life from being in that role. But if everybody's doing things together where there's different parts of the body doing different things and everybody just works together, nobody gets to say, oh, I'm the greatest in that situation because, you know, they didn't do half of the things that happened that night. And that's God actually, I think, has that kind of image. And we see that a little bit here when he's bringing them there. He says they all need to be ready. They're not all going to fight later in the chapter, but they need to be all ready to go in this, in these verses. Um, and I think that's an important idea that all believers should be ready to defend their faith at any time. And you should be ready to fight if you're needed to fight. Uh, but God doesn't need them to win this battle. Remember, God could just snap his metaphysical fingers and make AI disappear off the planet if he really wanted to. He doesn't need Israelites to win this battle, but he wants them to learn something as they're doing it. Verse five, then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. This is Joshua talking to Israel. And it will come about when they come out against us at the first that we shall flee before them for they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city for they will say they're fleeing before us at the first because that's exactly what they're going to say. Therefore, we will flee before them. So God's going to use their failure from the last chapter. AI is going to think they got them again, just like last time. And he's going to use that assumption or presumption of victory on the part of the enemy to beat them. So verse seven, then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandments of the Lord, you shall do see I've commanded you no doubt when God makes a command, right? This is what's going to happen. So Joshua gets the command from the Lord. The Lord gives the command to the peer. Joshua gives the command to the people. And we get this kind of idea. Again, here it says all the people. God doesn't want people split up. He wants them to all participate. It says we shall flee. They're going to pretend like they're running away. According to this commandment, Joshua, like all great godly leaders, follows God's commandment. And this is what they didn't do last time. So part of recovering from backsliding is to go back to where you were before you backslid and start again and go a different direction than you did last time. So sometimes that means like returning to Bible studies you were in back. Like if you can think of a time in your life when you were more alive in Christ than you are today, you're backslidden by definition. Go back to that place where you were when you were more alive in Christ and start again and pick a different path. And that's kind of what they're doing here. According to the commandment of the Lord, they're moving forward. It says, you shall do. I like that there's a role there. So in verse four, they're supposed to be ready. They're going to approach in verse 5. They're going to flee in verse 5. Then they're going to rise and seize in verse 7. And they all have different roles as they're doing this. Good teams have players with different roles. That's how strategy comes together. And you have different people with different strengths. But it's one team, and that's the difference this time. I remember as a principal, we had a kid at our school sweet kid, but he's special needs. And he's special needs where you can look at him and see that he's a special needs student. And I remember we'd have Friday night football games because this is small town Minnesota. And this kid would be on the sideline cheering on the players. And everybody just kind of accepted that he would be there and he would be cheering them on. And we had um, a couple kids that gave him a hard time and they're like, why are you, why do you care so much? Like I'm overhearing this as a principal and I was ready to rip these kids' heads off. 
they're coming and they're, they come up to this kid and they're like, why do you get so into this? It doesn't, they don't, they're trying to play a football game. Just leave them alone. And the, and the kid turns around and goes, I'm here because if I, they, they need me to cheer for them. And it, and it was just kind of a simple perspective. It's like, they need me to cheer for them. And when we went, when we would win a game, the way he would talk about it um, is that he would say, we won. It wasn't that the football team went. It, 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 he considered himself part of the team. I don't know how to, if you know these kids, you know what the, what that's like for them. They see their role as absolutely essential. And to be praising and encouraging from the sideline, in his head, he was on the team when he did that. That's what these little punk middle schoolers couldn't figure out. I had a chat with them after this happened, but that's not part of the story. Part of the story <laughs> is that this kid understood his role, that God hadn't given him all the talent and physical ability. He couldn't do what they did on that field but he had every role on that sideline to be an encourager and a cheer. And we were so easy as humans to undervalue the roles God's given. I think God puts a special needs person in almost every community in America so that we can learn how to have people part of the, be part of the team and how to do that. And I think he puts those people in every church that have different abilities and different talents. Some are hospitality, some are encouragement, some are prayer warriors, some know how to admonish. There's got to be a sledgehammer in every group that says, nope, that's not how we do it, right? So you got to have these those kinds of people to build a healthy and a functioning body of believers. And that's just how it works. Some people can teach, some people can do other things. I should have probably brought Paul's stuff on that into here, should have. Oops. I was busy this week. Come to me, all who are labor and who are heavy, heavy laden, I will give you rest. When everybody's on the team, it's not very stressful for anybody. When everybody's doing their part, you don't have pastor burnout, right? When people are participating and joining and making things easy, you don't have youth leaders falling into sin or worship leaders thinking that they're going to preach from the stage. It doesn't work that way because when you take on God's role that he's giving you, it's not that hard to do it and that things are doable in the kingdom. Everybody makes the cut for God. Nobody gets picked last because everybody's essential and God can pick outside of time. So everybody's literally picked at the same time. It's just a thought. God actually invites the weak, the broken, the downtrodden, and he brings them onto the team because they don't struggle with humility. They know where they sit. And this young man that was at that school I was at, he knew he wasn't a football player. Even as a simple-minded person, he knew he wasn't there. He knew he had struggles. He knew God had given him deficits, but he praised the Lord every day. And I loved it because he just ignored the whole don't talk about God in the schools. Like he was praised Jesus all the time. And he was one of those kinds of kids. What a blessing to our community he was. I don't even know if he knew what a blessing he was because he had so much he was struggling with on the inside. It's the people that think they're broken that God's ready to use because he doesn't have to take away their pride. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who's among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, oh, I did put it in here, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Different roles on the team, that's Romans 12, different roles on the team, but one church, one body, one group of people. 
with God, everybody's worthy. And I just love that idea. The problem from the last chapter is they left 27,000 people who thought they were warriors. You guys can stay home. We don't need you. The elites will take care of this. How sick. And the fact that God says, I'm not with you. If you're leaving my people behind who I've chosen, I'm not going to be with you in that. I'm going to leave you in the dust and you're going to let these AI people are going to kick your butts. And I'm glad they did. So that idea that everybody gets to help is a big deal, even if everybody doesn't wield a sword and everybody isn't hauling supplies on their shoulders and everybody doesn't get to carry the ark and everybody doesn't get to do sacrifices and everybody doesn't get to be Joshua, but they all get to be there and get to be part of it. And that's what it's like. I have people that are saying, I'm along for the ride and I helped. And my team won, even if I wasn't on the field. Verse 9 I don't know why, that just really got to me this week. Verse 9, Joshua therefore sent them out. And they went to lie in ambush, and they stayed between Bethel and Ai, and on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. (laughs) So Joshua takes charge by not doing anything outside of God's command. And he's, he's doing that. It says he lodged with the people, which in the Hebrew, there's a strong implication there. He went to bed that night. He took a nap. So they're coming off a loss and the leader of the people is just sleeping in, right? And I just think that's stunning. Uh, In Acts chapter 12, where Steph's at right now with with, uh, the Thursday night, uh, Peter is between two Roman guards, handcuffed to the guards, and he's sleeping. How do God's people, when when God says, my burden is light, you see Peter and Joshua just taking a nap and the, the night before a major battle. God's people can relax because they really realize deep in their soul it's not their fight and they're not fighting it. So I can take a nap. It's not my battle. Win or lose, live or die, it's up to God. I'm okay with it. And I've given up my life a long time ago. God wants to use it that way. Then I'm a meat shield for the rest of the people and I'm okay with that. So you see Joshua lodging with the people sleeping in, but he leaves the soldiers out in the field to stay up all night and be ready and be on guard. This is an amazing thing. Geographically, if you go to this spot, you can totally see how this plays out. There is a valley trench that goes along the west side and a light valley along the north side where you could hide thousands of people from AI. But if AI is on guard and they have watchtower people, they should be able to see those people out there but they're not looking that direction. They're able to completely go around, sneak up on the city from behind, hide behind some rocks and whatnot, and and be in ready and be in wait. So Joshua, verse 10, rises up early in the morning, apparently got a good night's sleep. And again, when you see rises early in the morning, that connotes an enthusiasm. Joshua's ready. This is going to be an exciting day for us. Why is he excited and not worried about losing again? Because this time God's talked to him. This time he's got the confidence of God. Last time he was trying to do it on his own strength, and this time he's rising early, ready to go. So he rises up early in the morning. He musters the people and went up, and he and, he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. Um, so they all head up and start walking towards the city. When they approach Ai from Gilgal, they're coming up from the south. If you're directionally challenged, that's the bottom of the map. So they're coming up from the south. They've got their ambush and wait to the north of the city and to the west of the city. So they're coming up that direction. That mob of people coming up from the south, AI's attention is entirely fixed on them. 
Then Joshua rise up early in the morning, musters the people. He went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. Verse 11. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near, and they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. This is geographically accurate, so one of those nice confirmation things that we see in the Old Testament. So he took about 5,000 men, set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. Okay, these 5,000 men are of that 30,000, right? So Joshua goes with them to put them into place. And then we're going to see a verse where he just walks back through the valley on his own. Like he's just fearless. So these men get a treat. There is something between Bethel and Ai. And I should have had like a prize or something. If anybody can remember what sits in that valley or in that, that space between those two cities. What? Between Bethel and Ai, there is a place that's recognizable because people have found it in the Bible. We've got to go back to Genesis 12. Does that help? No, that's too far. Okay. Genesis 12, verse 8. Uh, Abraham is up in these hills. He's bringing his sheep around. He's a herdsman. Um, and this is a spot where God talked to Abraham saying, I'm going to promise you the land. Mm. And Abraham builds an altar with his own hands, an altar of rocks which those rocks could theoretically still be there. So these 5,000, having growing up heard that story, might have made that connection themselves and been like, wait, is there an altar somewhere around here? And with 5,000 of them, it's likely that they found Abraham's old altar. Might have been overgrown with weeds, might have been, but at least there would have been a stack of rocks there. He pitched his tent um, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. So I don't know if the altar's still there. This passage doesn't say it, but they're literally in the same spot where Abraham would have built his altar and they would have probably gotten some confirmation from that. Like here we are in that spot. When the people had set, and when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. He just goes walking back to be with the people. So he must've been like, literally just walking around in sight, traveling around in the countryside on his own, not exactly fearing what's going on with AI, but he goes back to be with the other warriors. So what's happening with the 25,000 soldiers out of the 30,000? They're going to be sitting on the north, and largely they're just going to clean up because they're not really going to be part of much in the battle. The 5,000 are going to be the kind of the shock troops. So he's still got that smaller group that's doing the attacking, but he's also got these really large groups. I like to think that there's prayer warriors. In every church, there should be an army of people that's five times the size of the people of UC that are just praying for the leadership and, help, and helping to hold up that group in battle. So everybody's got the setup of the battle because in verse 14, it says, now it happened. Mm. So it's all going to unravel. And we'll see if it goes according to plan. When the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against battle against Israel to the battle, he and all his people at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Uh, it's key here that this is an appointed place in verse 14. In this battle, God's picking the locations. God set the stage and he's controlling the battlefield because he's put people in recognizable places or appointed places, places that are chosen. Um, Abraham then also would travel around with his herds 
and he would actually return to the spot where he put the first altar. If you go forward into Genesis 13, and it says the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. In other words, this location was recognizable to Abraham when he returned. If it's a big grassy plain, I can't always remember where I camped. But in this particular piece of geography, it was something that Abraham could remember. Uh, and it may be, I like to think, that this spot could be the actual spot where some of these this battle gets turned, where Israel recovers from its backsliding. So they call on the name of the Lord. They call on the name of the Lord here. Uh, Israel isn't worthy to do it, as we saw in Deuteronomy 9, but God's going to do it himself. Uh, AI, it says he did not know there was an ambush. He doesn't know there's an ambush because he's not sending out scouts. He's not moving with caution. He's just coming off. Remember, AI is coming off a big victory. And when you have a big victory, one of the dangers is that you move forward with pride. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Verse 15. Joshua and all the Israelites made as if they were beaten before them. They fled the way of the wilderness, which means they run to the south and to the east. This is what, in Aikido, the art of Aikido, one of the things you do is you take your opponent's force and use it against them. So if someone comes running at you to attack, you don't challenge the attack with equal force. You guide the attack to, to the ground. So you take that force or energy that the other person brings. I know this is Eastern mysticism -y, but there's just that idea that one of the arts of martial arts sometimes is instead of conflict or direct fighting with people, you just let them bury themselves. And you are able to do that with very simple nudges in one direction or the other. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening in this battle. He's taking all of AI's pride, this mass charge coming out of the city, and they're just saying, bring it, bring it, bring it. And then from behind, they're going to attack the city with nobody left to defend it. Because they're going to pour themselves out in an all-out attack, thinking we can really do some damage to Israel. So they don't. It doesn't work that way. But when we turn from a fight... When God commands us to turn from a fight, sometimes God's actually setting it up. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, it, that doesn't mean be abused for your entire life. But when there's a spiritual dialogue going on and your enemy wants to strike you, let them. Because in that action, verbal, physical, that assault, that attack against another human, we get a chance to show love. And we can it's kind of like a keto. You can use their energy against them. Right? And you can kind of take this, this approach to battle that when God says to retreat or flee, sometimes that's not a loss. It's not a step backwards. It's actually letting God command the battlefield. And this is a hard thing because we have to choose in almost every conversation if we want to get into it or not. And sometimes God says not. And sometimes God doesn't want us to get into arguments with people. What we need to do in that situation is show love or to back up and give them some space. And then sometimes God says to attack and to charge, and we have to defend our faith. And this is one of, the, if you guys figure out where that line is, let me know, um, because that's a really tough thing to decide. But they're in no doubt because God's told them what to do and how to do it. And our only hope is that we get good at hearing God's voice in our life. We listen to the still small voice as to whether or not we should retreat, whether or not we should move forward. But I just like the example in the Old Testament of God commanding his people to retreat, to back up. And to flee. And what happens then is the enemy thinks they've got it. Okay, they're running. Now we can really just exhaust all of our energies and attack because the enemy goes for blood. They don't want to spar, they want to destroy. 
And that's one of the things that I think the enemy has against them. It is that pride, that arrogance, that violence that they want to do to people. And sometimes taking the abuse shows everybody else in the room who has the strength, right? Because if you can give me all your wrath and I'm still standing at the end of it, there's not much wrath there. It's not much with any meat to it. Uh, we see that a lot. It's a really kind of, these are difficult concepts. It's going to happen just like God said. Verse 16, so all the people who are nigh were called together to pursue them. They pursued Joshua. They were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel. Notice that now there's two cities that have attacked Israel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Bethel's about a three-hour walk away from Ai. And it looks like in verse 17, both cities now are ready to pounce. So Israel just added an opponent. You would think if you added an opponent that they would, if Bethel went to Ai, they would have stumbled across the ambushers. Everybody get this in their geography right now? They would have totally stumbled across that small force of ambushers and they would have caught them from behind. Israel would have actually been in a really tough spot. But instead of going over to Ai and joining forces and moving thoughtfully, Bethel just attacks from their city, bypassing the ambushers altogether. And so they're both going after the main force of Israel, and the ambushers are left without being noticed. That's kind of a God thing. What verse am I on? 17? When a snake attacks you, if you've had the pleasure... When snakes bite, they throw themselves into it, even little baby ones. Their whole body will make the attack. If you think of a king cobra and they kind of poise up, when they actually attack, the rest of that body acts like a spring coil. And the entire snake will fly through the air going right at people. This is how evil works. And we get a glimpse of evil with AI and Bethel here. They don't, back, they don't hold back or think thoughtfully. When evil attacks, it attacks with everything it's got. So if you're wearing a nice leather glove and you just catch the snake on your glove because you're prepared with the armor of the Lord, or like Paul when it bites him out of the fire and he just shakes it off and God's protecting him, that's all the snakes got. If they miss their attack, they literally fall on the ground and just kind of splat there. And they're kind of helpless, splayed out before you. When the enemy attacks and they do it with everything they've got, that's all they have. And we've seen this throughout history with people that are kind of venge vengeful or mean. The Mongols had some of this going on. The Arabs attacking Israel right now. They're not attacking partially. They're attacking with every missile they've got at once. They're expending all of their resources. And if the good people of the world can see through that, there's nothing left to be scared of. They've expended all of the violence they could muster in that one singular attack. If some of you have the joy or pleasure to deal with, to, to talk about like political issues with people, people often bring their best stuff right up front because they're not cautious or thoughtful enough to save their best rational arguments till last. They just pounce. Go into Twitter, Facebook, YouTube comment threads. People just splay the worst stuff they got out right in front. And it's ugly when that happens. But it is how evil works. And we get an example of that here. They are moving forward blind, brutish, and stupid. And this is not good strategy. You don't leave your city unprotected without a rear guard. It's not a good idea. But they're not moving forward thinking of what's best for their people. They're just attacking. 
and they're doing it without any regard for their people. So AI is left wide open. So yes, the human plan is not smart and God's plan is going to make a waste of that. Verse 18, then the Lord says to Joshua, stretch out the spear that's in your hand toward AI for I will give it into your hand. Um, it's interesting that um, Joshua's part in all of this is to hold a, a spear out. The word spear, oh, I'll come back to that. Let me read the rest of this part. Joshua stretched out the spear that was in the hand towards this that was in his hand towards the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place, and they ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, smoke of the city ascended to heaven. They had no power to flee this way or that, and the people who had fled into the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. Aha, we got you. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and they struck down the men of Ai. The others came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the middle midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, and they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai, they took alive and they brought him to Joshua. So like Jordan and Jericho, when the flesh leads, they get nothing. But when God leads, every step is directed by God. Things tend to go well. So the stretching out the spear, this is kind of an epic victory pose that Joshua gets to put on there. But he's not actually attacking with a spear. He's just holding it out. And what's interesting, I think, about the word spear is that in the Hebrew, it's something to strike with. It's not like particularly a spear. For instance, in Jeremiah 50, that same word is used and translated as a lance. In 1 Samuel 17, it's called a javelin, at least in my Bible. It's a sharp object of war is what it is. It could be a sword. So it's something that you hold in your hand with a sharp edge on it that's meant to attack and kill people. Uh, but we don't know exactly what weapon it is. And I saw that and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool because Paul in Ephesians 6.17 says that we have a helmet of salvation and a sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. So it's not Joshua holding up a spear that wins this battle, but he does get to hold the victory pose. So he's really lucky in that regard. It's Joshua doing what God says to do. He's taking God's word and he's turning it into action. That's what wins this battle. God's going to win it because he's got people working with him instead of against him. That's a, I know I keep making that point tonight, but it's so, it's just essential in this thing. God flips the whole game around what the enemy thought he had a victory, God just turns the tables. And and I think there's something in our soul that loves that plot line. When everything looks bad for our hero and all of a sudden something happens, God happens and it all turns around and God uses all of it for good. He uses the whole situation for good. All we got to do is hold out something that's meant for war. And God's war, word is a sharp two-edged sword. And when he holds out God's word, literally and figuratively, he's doing what God told him to do. He's obeying God's word by holding out this spear. And then in the New Testament, we're told that we have a sharp two-edged sword in our hand. We're supposed to hold forth the word of God. And you can't do that if you don't know it. Or you can pretend like you know it, but you really don't. And then the whole church suffers. It doesn't work that way. They had no power. And literally the word power there in the Hebrew is yada, or it means a hand. 
So there's a contrast between the people of Ai and Bethel having no power and the people of Israel having the spear held out by Joshua, the word of God being acted out on. They have the word of God. The people of Ai have nothing. This is going to be a landslide victory for, for Israel. Power is God, and we as humans don't have that power. I love these flip stories. They thought they had Haman on ready to go to the gallows, and then the in Esther, the what's his lips? What's the bad guy's name in Esther? Haman. Haman, or they, they they thought they had Mordecai ready to go to the gallows, but then as it turns out, Haman's going to hang on the same gallows, right? It all gets flipped. Peter's in a prison cell. Satan thinks he's got him, uh, but angels are going to let him out, and then he's going to go preaching in the temple the very next day, and it all flips around, right? Wasn't he hauled off by the yesterday? Now he's back teaching in the synagogue. Um, church shutdowns. <laughs> I think this is crazy. In Canada and in America, we've got a lot of churches that got literally shut down or wanted to stay open. And what I think the enemy was using to separate people or to alienate people, God turns has turned into a major revival because people found ways to meet anyways. Like churches went to Zoom and started meeting on Zoom. And now they're back meeting face-to-face, but they still have Zoom. It like doubled our ability to communicate with people. It's pretty amazing what's going on. And in states like in Canada and in California where these shutdowns were a lot more antagonistic, the churches have doubled and tripled in size. Baptisms have increased. Like people are getting saved because they're realizing this is kind of neat. And God uses that. When evil oversteps and thinks that it's got a foothold, it then goes all in on it. And everybody can see how horrible it is. And people can say, well, wait a second. Like, we understood why we were doing this back then, but why are you still doing this? Like, that's just vindictive and mean. And even people that aren't part of the spiritual battle can see what's going on. And you're like, wow, this isn't okay. So the governor of California had to return all the fines or whatever, except he didn't do it for the one church that made the biggest stink and led the lawsuit. So it just exposes the pettiness of evil. It exposes everything about it because he can't stop himself. He's just going to keep going. Um, They kill Stephen, and people see a light shining around Stephen while he's giving his testimony. And while they're killing one martyr for Christ, hundreds of people that are listening to Stephen get saved. And from God's battle plan, that's the game plan. And so sometimes we as believers get sent to the gallows. Sometimes we die for our faith. And in doing that, people see how we behave in those situations. We all got to die someday. We get to choose how we're going to die. And that shines a light to everybody around us. That can be the greatest testimony is when we go through those things. So evil thinks it's won. It's actually surrounded and totally outmatched. And this battle is a foregone conclusion. God flips everything. And I love that. The triumph of the wicked is always short-lived or it's empty and the, the victories belongs to the Lord. Verse 24, it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So that it was all so it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand. 
which with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed the inhabitants of Ai. There's a point being made here of him holding out the spear. It's kind of reflective of when Moses held up his arms in the battle with the Amicalites, and Joshua was one of the people that held that arm up. Joshua doesn't get anybody to help him hold his arm up. So you got to think, you know, in survival, they have the contest where you just got to hold your arms out. You got to think that was exhausting for him. But Joshua didn't get the same helper that Moses did. In holding out that stuff himself, holding out what God told him to do, Joshua didn't actually strike anybody. He didn't get to be a battle hero. He was the one just teaching the word or showing the word, putting the word out of God to do it, that sharp image that he gets. It's a powerful image of spiritual battle. So once we start sharing this this idea that we hold up God's word and that's actually what wins battles, um, we can start to embrace that kind of way of living. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit to joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When we memorize God's word, we actually see people better. We can see thoughts and we can see people's hearts with more clarity. The word destroy in chapter um, 26 is haram or harem. Uh, we keep seeing this word. It, it is to devote or consecrate something. It can be set aside for God or it can be destroyed for garbage. And in the Bible, we keep seeing that word haram pop up, translated usually destroy, but we've seen it in both contexts. And in this case, AI is being set aside for trash. They take all the loot uh, and they set it aside. They put it there. Um, it is not rebuilt in the Bible and the archaeology that's going on there today, it was never rebuilt. So the destruction of AI uh, is to this day, it is uh, set aside or destroyed um, for destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as booty for themselves. I know it's a pirate word, but it's fun to see it in the Bible. According to the word of the Lord, which he made, commanded to Joshua, Jericho is the first fruit. AI is the harvest. And they're going to go through the cities of Israel and do that. So Joshua burns AI, made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. Uh, Bryant Wood uh, in the 1900s is a British archaeologist. Uh, he actually did the primary redigging of this location, uh, found it because the Bible gave them directions. All he had to do was find a spot between here and here that had a valley to the west and the north. And he dug it up and he found a city that was destroyed by fire. Uh, no surprises if you just read Joshua chapter 8. Uh, that's exactly what he found in the 1800s. Um, and it's the, right now it's called Kerbet el-Makater. It's got a, it's got a, um, a, a Arab name to it. Um, and the locals still call it uh, AI. So it's fun in Israel. you got people that have kind of lived kind of like farmers in northern Minnesota. They've kind of been there the whole time. So you can go to most places in the Middle East, and if you ask the Bedouins or the people that have always lived off the land, they still have the same names that the Bible did for a lot of these places. Uh, so that they were able to point out this spot too. Uh, the burning and the cleansing that happens here uh, it would destroy all idols that were in the city. Those wouldn't have been claimed. Uh, and the king of Ai, he hung on a tree until evening. Remember in Deuteronomy, you can't hang somebody on a tree overnight because the point isn't, the point is to make a scene of it, but not to let the body decompose and decay on a tree, because uh, that's just gross, I guess. Um, but the definite article here is that it's a specific tree. It's not just any old tree. It's a tree. It's one that was set aside, picked. 
which means it could have been a naturally grown tree or it could have been a post that was put up like a cross. Uh, but they hung out the king. And then I started to think, well, wait a second. If all of AI was destroyed, who's the king on the tree for? Right? Does that, that's a good question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Who is being shown this body of the king? And who needs to see that? So you're sending a message when you do that. But who's the message for? So again, we get to this situation where it says the city was destroyed, but he killed the people in the field. So it's, again, one of those situations where um, it says in verse 24, you see it says, all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, they all fell by the edge of the sword. And then the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. In other words, they went into the city and destroyed all the idols, all the stuff, and anybody that was remaining in the city that fought against them. But you could easily interpret that to say that they're hanging the king of Ai on a tree to show them that Ai is done and it's dead. And any of the peaceful people that, by the way, if they have people hiding to the north and ambush to the west and Israel is coming up from the south, what direction could anybody run if they wanted to get out of this? East. All they had to do is walk. There's nobody on the east side of the city. So it's likely a number of people said, I ain't fighting Israel. I'm getting out of here. And they walked out and they were not combatants in the field and they weren't trying to defend the city. And they were just kind of out there. It is likely that those people would then in verse 29 see the king hanging on a tree. Or it says nothing about destroying Bethel yet. So maybe those people from Bethel were running or retreating, but it says that they didn't. So it could be that the rest of the city of Bethel, which is only a, a short distance away, would then be able to come and see the king on that tree. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, is, is it really, like, it wouldn't be for Israel. It wouldn't be a warning to the Israelites. That would be an odd thing. Um, but it could be a warning to the people of Bethel. Verse 17 says that there, there are some of them at the battle. Um, and it dissolves the city. The city's in desolation, verse 28, to this day. It lends to the idea that the city's destroyed, but the people had a choice, just like they did in Jericho. They had time to get away, just like Jericho. They had a path to get away, just like Jericho. They had the opportunity to not fight the people of God if they chose not to. Um, anyways, the king's hung on the tree for whatever people are left that need to see it. At the end of the day, he's taken down. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day, builds a memorial. This is a tough passage, because we got the backsliding part and how Israel comes back into the game, and we like that part. The king of Ai provides an image of what happens to people that defy God. It's death. Cursed is the man who hangs on the tree, Deuteronomy, right? So this is the, what every sinner actually deserves is this kind of death because we defy God. And if we are sinners, if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we have owed to us the destruction of God. That's a tough thing to understand. But the king of Ai is getting what he deserves in, in a just kind of way because he defied God's people. So we get a choice. We can follow. This is tough for people because why would God need to punish somebody? And the answer is the same reason he doesn't need the Israelites to win a battle. He doesn't need the king of Ai to hang on a tree. 
a lot of what God does with humanity is because we need to see things. We need to see the consequences of sin and that it's real. We also need to see the, the blessings of following God and that it's real. And God is not us and we are not God. So we don't get to define God. So then you're left with a situation. You can choose to follow a God that punishes evil or you can choose to f follow an evil that punishes God. And you have those two choices. So either you're following a good God that has no time or place for those that defy him and that he's holy in doing that because in truth he is good and his word is truth and life and light and a way and a path. Or you have the enemy or ourselves, which is the image of a wasted life that clings to corruption because we think it's such a good thing in our day. It's a wasted time. And this king of AI destroyed his people because he chose to defy God's people. He could have migrated away like a lot of Canaanites are doing right now. But he chose not to do that. So at this point, uh, the word goes out. Uh, we know historically that Canaanites are migrating through this period of history. They're clearing out of the land. God is driving them out ahead of time. And we get two small memorials. We get two memorials. A small memorial at the gate, don't be like the king of Ai. And then we get a big memorial in verse 30. Now Joshua builds an altar to the Lord of God of Israel in Mount Ebal. That's two days away from Ai. It's a, so they hike for a couple days. Time just passed with the word now. Verse 31, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered it on burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Deuteronomy 11 has, this, uh, has that commandment. Jericho and Ai are now removed as threats, which means Gilgal, in the plains of Jericho, is safe. So... This is akin to if you're playing a strategy game and you take a territory and you've knocked the armies out right next to you. That territory is pretty safe for the short term. So by taking out AI and Jericho, they've just carved out a little postage stamp of a spot in the Holy Land that they can have. So now they're building a memorial to themselves, or to the what not to themselves, but they're building a memorial themselves that God commanded them to build. And they're going to give burnt offering there. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Remember, they were going to whitewash the stones and then you carve away the whitewash and you've got black lettering on a white rock. So these would have been big rocks. Mount Ebal means bald, which could be that those rocks or those huge stones went all the way around the top of the mountain or that they even used the stones of the mountain to write the word of God out. When it says write the word, uh, the law of Moses, uh, that is not just the Ten Commandments. That is probably the entirety of what we found in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy would have been written out. This would have been a major project. Um, no man wields iron tools on these stones because it's God's work, it's not man's. Uh, it's a burnt offering. Uh, we know that that's to atone from sin. Uh, and we know the sin from chapter 7 is part of what that burnt offering is for. Uh, there's a peace offering, which affirms that we're all good with God. Remember, peace offerings are a barbecue. You put them, you wave them up, and then you take them back and eat them. Uh, so the peace offering is that you've given something to God, and God gives it right back to you. The law of Moses then gets written out. The shortest edition of that would kind of be the Exodus 
uh, Ten Commandments, but the size of this memorial would have been a lot more than just the Ten Commandments. This would have been a really big kind of project. The point here, Moses doesn't, or Joshua doesn't change the law that Moses wrote down. He establishes it, he fulfills it, and then he's going to write it out. Uh, this idea that Joshua, Yeshua, does not destroy the law but keeps it and fulfills it is an idea that Jesus claimed too. Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to build. I did not come to destroy or consecrate or set something aside either for good or for bad. He came to fulfill the law of the prophets. So in the same way Jesus came to fulfill, Joshua actually fulfills what Moses said would happen when they come into the land. So you get that nice parallel. Verse 33. Then all Israel, with their elders, their officers, their judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim. Gerizim means cutting off. And half of them were on in front of Mount Ebal, which means bald or stony-topped. Um as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before them that they should bless the people of Israel. So this is the first thing that they're doing after this victory. After they come back from backsliding, they recover from sin, they give glory to God when they have their next victory. And they honor God with his word and actually writing it out. And then the idea of Ebal and Gerizim is they shout the blessings and the curses back and forth at each other, which is at the end of Deuteronomy. Um, so they're, they're shouting all these things back. They're doing a big, huge thing. That peace offering is a giant feast. They're having a party. Again, they keep doing this. And instead of going out and just conquering in a bloodthirsty way, these are not Mongol hordes. These are people that build memorials. They have feasts. They bring their families with them. And they do everything according to the law. Uh, geographically, the Gerizim Ebal thing is one of the spots I really want to go to in Israel because what you read about it is that this spot is acoustically perfect. So it's one of the places on earth that's naturally an auditorium and you could you can stand, I guess, in the middle where the ark would have been and if somebody's reading out the law, you'd be able to hear them from either mountainside. You know, you get echoes in Colorado kind of. This is just one of those kinds of spots. By the way, another one of those spots is the Sermon on the Mount spot, which you can go there and there's a natural amphitheater there. So one person could speak and easily 5,000 people could hear it. So you have these places that God has set aside on the planet and made them especially perfect for situations in his word. So these, and Ebal Gerizim is just one of the spots I want to go. But I think it's like part of the West Bank right now, yes. So you can't go there without like landmines and threat of rockets and stuff. So we would have to sneak in. Like that's, that's only a small barrier for us. Verse 34. Afterward, afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that's written in the book of the law. He read the first five books of the Bible. Straight through. Probably not a lot of commentary. All five books, Deuteronomy 27, they're going to shout amen when they get there. So they're going to read it and they're all going to be like, yeah! And that's, you know, kids are saying yeah because they're finally done with all this reading. But the adults are saying yeah because something's changed in their heart. And they're excited about the fact that they're finally moving the way God wanted them to move. And I think that that's just, for that moment in our life when things are finally clicking the way God wants them to, 
it is kind of a refreshing time. You don't lose spirit and lose heart when that happens. You actually gain speed, and it's pretty exciting. So the moral of yourself, the story of chapters 6, 7, and 8 is when you do it on your own, you're going to fail. When you follow the law of God, you succeed. Really simple lesson. Do it your way. It's chaos, and you're going to screw up. It's going to end with depression, anxiety, and bad things. Do it God's way, and you might get martyred, but you'll be happy in the process of getting martyred. One of the cool things at the pastor's conference is um, the, uh, it's, is it Dan Borman? So the guy, in, he was nine months in an Iranian jail. He was one of the lead speakers when we got there. And you know, the amazing thing is, it was a comedy routine. He got up there and he's laughing and he's telling jokes like, I'm not a very good prisoner. I learned that. I thought I'd be an awesome prisoner, but I wasn't. I was horrible at it. I wanted to go home every day. I cried. <laughs> I admit, I, I mean, he's up there just talking about it. And, and he's got the room in stitches. And we're laughing because this, the contrast between his spirit and his reflection on it and what we know must have been one of the most horrible experiences on earth it's crazy. And all you can do is laugh. And he's like, so I got up, they hauled me out of the cell and I knew it was my daily beating. And right before he hit me one day, I said, you know, we could just be friends. Could we just be friends? Cause he spoke Iranian and he was able to speak. And the guy just stopped and he, and he hit him and he goes, why would you want to be my friend? And he goes, because we can be friends and skip the whole beating thing <laughs> if you want to. And he did. And it, so he's telling these stories, and you're just like, whoa. And he goes, so I didn't really know how to be a good prisoner, but, you know, the Lord gives you what you need when you need it. So you can pick between the truth. Following God doesn't mean you're going to evade misery, but your spirit evades misery completely. Following yourself doesn't mean you're never going to have a good day, but your spirit's never going to be fulfilled. And that's a contrast that's hard to understand if you've never had the Spirit of God working in your life. If you've never felt the King guide you in your steps, you don't know the difference. And we're dealing with people that are blind and they can't see it because they've never heard it. They don't know there's a better way to live until they see it. And that's so the lesson of these three chapters is there is a different way to live. I want to point out something here that came up earlier when we were following Israel through the wilderness. Verse 33, you have all Israel, elders, judges, officers, priests, Levites, because they get, they're not going to get land, so they're a slightly separate group. And then look at there, the stranger as well as he who is born among them. Part of Israel right now is not just the Hebrews. There are Canaanites in the camp. There are Amorites in the camp. There are Egyptians. If you remember from Exodus, there were some Egyptians that said, I'm with you guys. And they came along, those other people. Israel is inviting everybody in the door. And we see that again and again and again. And this is, for me, one of those big responses to people who are like, oh, these are just mean people and they slaughtered people. And No, they didn't. The doors opened. You can choose to live in holiness under a law or you can continue to do your chaos and defy the people of God. We'll give you warnings. We'll be in the wilderness for 40 years. We'll be at the riverbank for two weeks. We'll celebrate fat Passover and you can smell the cooking. When I smelt the fat Passover, wouldn't you come down from AI and just join the party? So they invite them to the feast. 
but there are strangers in the camp with them. And it's spoken in verse 33 like that's not a big deal. It's totally okay. We know Rahab was a Jerichoian who now lives with the camp. And she's eventually going to be married into Israel. I am so blessed by that idea. These are people saying there's a different way to live that has a lot to do with feasting. And I want to be with those people, even if I overcook the burgers tonight. Thank you all for being graceful about that. So they read the book of the law. Those strangers that are in the group in verse 33 are there to hear the law in verse 34. And that's the key. Everything's centered around the word of God. That's where it all starts. We read the word of God. We study the word of God. Then we go feast. Then we fellowship. Then we minister and pray to one another. And frankly, that stuff I think is almost more important for our souls. But it starts with studying the word of God together. And then the ministering of the saints starts to happen. And that's exactly what we see here. The spear is held out. Joshua holds it up as long as he can and he faithfully keeps it up until the work is done. And then they feast together and they fellowship with one another and the strangers are part of the club. And I think to some degree, that's part of why the king was hung on the tree is so that the people could choose good. It's the same reason why Jesus was hung on a tree so that the good people can choose good and that we can see the choice. The king of AI is what evil looks like. Jesus resurrected is what good looks like. And you have a distinct choice between two kings that are hung on a tree. It's kind of awesome, isn't it? Then we get to this question, what do you do when you're backslidden? <laughs> read the word of God. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what they're doing. If you're backslidden, return to where you started. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read. This is why I don't think it was just the Ten Commandments. I mean, they make it really clear. Not a word was skipped, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. They say it twice. When the Bible says it twice, it's trying to make a point. Everybody's part of the crew. If you want to live under God's law, you're welcome into the kingdom. And I think this is where the Pharisees get it wrong. They start to treat the Samaritans like they're not part of the kingdom. They treat everybody else like they're excluded. If you're not in our club, you're wrong. And that's not God's idea of what he wants his people to be doing. His people should have the invitation open. So we get this verse 35, which feels like a big, yay. Like this is the end of a great scene in the Bible. They're back on there. They're, the little ones are included. There is no Sunday school. The little ones sit and listen to the word of God like everybody else, which means there's babies crying, kids got to go to the bathroom, all that stuff's happening with two million people. It's chaos, and they don't even have a loudspeaker system. But the commitment to the Word of God is there, even through the struggles of getting it out. The little ones, you don't push them away because they're loud and noisy. They're going to come too because they need to hear the law too. The strangers are there, and we already talked about the strangers. Everybody's part of this process. They didn't have this idea that reading the word of God was a bad thing, a complex thing, or something you need someone with a seminary degree to do. Because Joshua did not have a seminary degree. He just read what the word said, and he didn't skip any of it. And that's always been it. Sometimes I get people saying, why does the church today not look like the book of Acts? Why do we not have that which was there? <laughs> it's a really simple answer. If you read the word of God and you see where God's people have success, they start and end that success in the word of God. They know what it says and then they try to do it. 
It's just that simple. Every major revival in the history of Europe and America that we have records of started with somebody saying, we need to read the word of God and understand it. Because if we do this, then all of this stuff around us can start to change. But it doesn't change because we fight it. It changes because we hold up the word of God and we keep it up until the battle's done. And that means an unapologetic acceptance, love, and adoration for what God has to say without conditioning it, without backing off on it, without saying, well, maybe this and maybe that, but to say, I believe God, I believe what God says, and I don't feel ashamed of it. And you want to come over for a barbecue. Like, honestly, that's the ministry strategy of the people of Israel, is that they sit around and eat food and they destroy other people's idols. And the destroying of idols can be a lot of fun, but we didn't get into that. But when you take people's idols and you take a shot at them, that hits people's soft spots. For instance, next time somebody brings up a football team, just look at them blankly and say, what is football? And see how they react. Just take a knock at people's idols and see how they react to it. See what happens. Whatever people worship, it's fair game. If it's not God, it's something you can have fun with. But that's a whole different thing because we'll have more idol killing in the book of Joshua. For now, let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we come to you each week. Um, help us to humble ourselves before you. Uh, Lord, we don't know anything beyond your word. Uh, we, we seek you and we, uh, we do our studies. We all have expertise. We've taken classes, Lord, and we, we put all that before you. Uh, Lord, there's no amount of learning that we have that even amounts to an ounce of what you know and what you've already done and promised. Lord, help us to study your word each week, uh, to be faithful to it, Lord, to commit to it and to get through it and then start over. Um, Lord, I just pray you bless that. May it do a work in our hearts. Uh, may we change to be more like you and more like your people. And may we learn from these stories and take great hope in them as Paul, uh, Paul wrote. Um, Lord, may we just be lifted up each time we read the, the words that you have. Lord, help us to hold out the word of God with absolute courage, with fearlessness and with boldness. Lord, help us to not be dismayed and to be split up and broken in that. Help us to be united in that and to do it together. Lord, help us to never leave anybody behind. Uh, Lord, there is no gift or talent that you have minimized or exalted over another. Uh, Lord, you've put us all into each place with no accidents. And we're here, Lord, with skills and talents and interests and enthusiasts, uh, things we're enthusiastic about, uh, Lord, because you put those things in our heart. So I pray that you cultivate those things. Help us to be active and serving. Lord, as we stop and, and pray together, Lord, I, that's just so important. We've started with your word, but Lord, help us to minister one another, to share each other's needs. And Lord, we want to ask you for things tonight. So I, I pray we pray with boldness, uh, with, with the confidence that you hear every word because you've said you hear our words and you hear our prayers. We gather in your name. Uh, and, and Lord, we, we lift you up and we praise you and we exalt you. So bless us and be with us. May your Holy Spirit move amongst us. May we have no doubt what your word says and what your word tells us on how to live and how to act and what to think and believe. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.